You're listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. Kia ora This is R1 News here on Radio 1, Te Reo Irirangi Kotahi 91 FM. Kokaya tēnei. Coming up on the show, we have Scott with today's bulletin and weather. We speak to film and media director Michelle Walsh about her company Augusto's creation of a new sustainable travel campaign for Prince Harry's organisation Travelist. And we talk to secondary school teacher Adam Weir about the recent dispatching of mask mandates in schools. Before that, we have Hot Sauce Club with Tony Hawk here on R1 News. Some bleach and hazel skin Special power she's got within To get caught up is a sin It's getting cold in this house Why are you taking off your blouse? My, my, you give me a scare We should not be doing this in here But I'm quite as Instead, you're bringing me down. Like a fool in the rain, I said you'll never get your brain. It's just a short return driving me insane. All these games you play, don't know. Said I'd go for a walk She said her name's Tony Hawk I said, oh well, that's great You wanna Go on a skate She shoved the board in my
Time is 9 minutes past 11. You're listening to R1 News on Radio 1, Tereo Edirangi Kotahi 91 FM. That was Hot Sauce Club with Tony Hawk. Coming up, we speak to Augusto's Michelle Walsh about directing and producing a new sustainable travel campaign for Prince Harry's organisation Travelist. Before that, here is Scott with the Bulletin and Weather. This is the news on Radio 191 FM. Our top stories today. Russia has finally declared the capture of the Ukrainian city of Mariupol as the last stronghold of resistance, the 959 Ukrainian soldiers occupying the Azovstal steelworks, finally surrendered. The victory is seen as mostly symbolic to military analysts, as Mariupol is the largest Ukrainian city to have fallen to Russian hands completely. Some analysts believe it would serve as an important victory for troop morale. The New Zealand budget for 2022 will be released at 2pm today and will outline the top spending priorities for the country over the next year. Environmental measures are expected to feature heavily given the recent release of the government's emissions reduction plan. While post-COVID measures will almost certainly be present, it is believed that allocations made for the continued upgrade of the Royal New Zealand Navy's two frigates will fall within budget limits. These ships have recently undergone upgrade work in Canada and are expected to serve through to the mid-2030s. Te Party Māori co-leader Rauri Waititi has accused the government of unfair practices as questions were raised about the lack of a Māori equity committee with relation to New Zealand's COVID-19 response. Māori health leaders have been calling for the creation of an equity group for two years. However, the group was only established in February of this year. The Waitangi Tribunal ruled in December that Māori were disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 Delta variant outbreak. Despite this, COVID-19 Response Minister Chris Hipkins said New Zealand had one of the most equitable responses possible. That was the news. Now for the weather. The Radio 191 FM weather. Today in Dunedin, there is a high of 17 degrees and a low of 6 Early morning clouds and showers will clear by the afternoon. Tomorrow there will be showers throughout the day with a high of 11 and a low of 5. This is believed to be a result of the uh, winter blasts scheduled to hit the southern island coming in the next week. That was the weather. That was Scott with the Bulletin and Weather. Coming up we speak to Michelle Walsh, owner of production and media company Augusto, about their recent sustainable travel campaign for travellers. First, here is Beanie with Miss Me here on Radio 1. I don't really know what I'm thinking I don't want to die till you kiss me Kiss me, miss me, miss me Never leave me alone in the city Never solve my mind, it's been tricky Long time since we drove down the Sally Boga shira mommy, chincha shilchi Miss me, miss me, miss me Like 
Fiji, Noga, Opsa, Musa, Senka, Hento, Opsa, Holding, Feeling, Toxic Emotion, Crying, Swearing, Drowning, I'm told, I said, Kapona, Nana, Nana, Ija Bolin, Senka, Ija Bolin, Pamyaki, Bonin, Se, Bonin, Se, Nana, Namchi, Anchi. I know what I'm thinking, don't wanna die till you kiss me, kiss me, miss me, miss me, never leave me alone in the city. That was b with Miss Me. You're listening to R1 News here on Radio 1 Tereo Irirangi Kotahi 91FM. Travelist is a not-for-profit organisation founded by Prince Harry, Duke of Sussex, aiming to encourage and initiate sustainable travel practices. Recently, Travelers released a video campaign starring household Kiwi names such as Rhys Darby, David Fane and Brenna Owen alongside Prince Harry himself. The video has been received controversially by some, criticised for its alleged hypocrisy by Piers Morgan and called bizarre by the Daily Mail. However, it is still gaining traction in media around the world despite its unique brief and length. Earlier in the week, I spoke to Michelle Walsh, owner of production company Augusto and director of Travelist's campaign video, about the casting, production and intention behind the campaign, including the assurance of positive and accurate cultural representation. Kia ora, Michelle. How are you? I'm so good. Thank you for having me on this beautiful afternoon. Thank you for coming on. So I can imagine that your campaign took a lot of organisation and pre-production with a specific brief and message you wanted to communicate. I think um, the really exciting thing about this project is that Travelist is on a mission to encourage travellers to put sustainability at the heart of their holidays. And it was a really fun brief to work on because we wanted to kind of look at it and think, well, you know, we also came to rate our own holidays, but what if our holidays rated us and our own practices and what we, um, ha- what our impact is on our own, on the holiday and, and the communities that we visit. And so it was really a really fun campaign to sort of, um, I guess, uh, come at travel from a new lens and um, obviously promoting sustainable travel. But Travelist is working with um, seven of the world's largest 
companies in travel that are sometimes even competitive and they've all come together to work out tools to help consumers travel better and um, obviously do so and have great experiences, but with a much lighter footprint on the planet, help the communities they visit. So it's been awesome, but yes, lots, lots of work and lots of clever people. I can imagine that that all came into play, especially considering this is a slightly different endeavor to your normal path at Augusto. A lot of your work centers around documentary, working with Kiwi mm-hmm. legends like Richie McCaw, Jazz Thornton, and David Farrier. And you've also done a bit of narrative drama work, notably short poppies. This sort of campaign isn't what Augusto has historically been known for. Why did you decide to take this project on? So one arm of the business, um, we focus on entertainment and telling long form stories, just like you talked about with some of those amazing people. Um, But the other part of the business works in advertising. And so sometimes we're really lucky and our worlds merge where we get to tell these sort of slightly longer form stories, but for a brand. Um, And more and more, um, we've been really consciously moving our business towards telling stories that help people and planet in some way. So for example, you know, you you talked about Richie McCall, we did his um, documentary, uh, Chasing Great, a number of years ago. And for us, that was about using sport as a platform to highlight overcoming adversity and inspire kids to stay in sport and all sorts of things like that and then on the uh, to the other extreme of impacting people um we've been we were really lucky to work with the very fabulous jazz thornton and help her tell her story uh which focused on mental health and suicide and um you know that's right obviously at the very heart of of um mental health and well-being and so for us you know we have these extraordinary people at augusto that are passionate about telling stories and i think stories can take many shapes and have impact in many ways. And sometimes that's a documentary and sometimes it's something like this for travelers. So in, in a funny way, this sort of fits perfectly with what Augusto is about, which is um, just bringing together great people and, and great causes to tell stories that matter and impact in some way, shape or form. For the most part, you've worked with the actors and celebrities in this short film before. Were they chosen specifically because Augusto thought their international stardom might play a crucial role in the global success of the campaign? Well, um, Prince Harry obviously was a logical choice because he's the founder of Travelist. Um, and we wanted the people in the film to represent the diversity of Aotearoa. Um, and we also were, had some other interesting limitations on that, which was, and, um, and not, I shouldn't say limitations, I should say opportunity in, in that we were shooting in Los Angeles. So we, we had access to some pretty extraordinary Kiwis over there who kindly donated their time to the cause. So it was sort of a, a combination of like, um, who who cares about this project and what, what we're trying to do here and um, is, is available at the moment and represents, you know, the full diversity of Aotearoa. So I think we were super duper lucky um, to have all of the wonderful people, Rena Owen and Dave Fane and Reese Darby and, of course, Prince Harry take part. The campaign promotes sustainable travel on multiple levels. While the emphasis is on environmental sustainability, other practices such as supporting local businesses are also encouraged. There's even an emphasis on providing cultural representation in the film, including use of Te Reo Māori, despite the fact that the film was considered for a global audience. How did you ensure the intentional and positive promotion of all types of sustainability? Uh, I think what was so exciting about this particular um, piece of content was that we were able to focus it around New Zealand and 
um, Maori values. And I know, you know, Harry himself talks about that, that Maori culture inherently understands sustainable practices and how to take care of um, our beautiful lands. And Kaitiaki Tanga is, is one of those values. So for us, it was really important that we, um, that that was represented well in the film. And in an instance like this, um, it's really important that we get really um, great cultural advisory. And in this instance, um, we were really lucky to work with Donna Tamariki from Moria Consulting. And she um, was able to review all of the different aspects of the film and make sure that we were being true to those values. So um, that was a really, really fantastic part of the film that I enjoyed immensely. One thing that stood out to me when viewing the campaign for the first time was the length. It's just under five minutes, which is not a particularly common runtime. Often audiences will either commit to a full-length documentary or flick absentmindedly through a stream of 20-second videos, but a five-minute clip is almost stuck in limbo between two major target audiences. Why did you decide that this would be the most impactful length for the film? This is such a good question because... You know, when we started making, when I started directing many moons ago, uh, I directed for television and it was 22 and a half minutes, you know, and it didn't matter whether your content was worthy of 22 and a half minutes or not. That's the length that it was going to be. And then, of course, over time and through having all these sorts of new platforms to put our work on that aren't constrained by a time frame, we've had these um, these kind of... Um, limits imposed by what's whether our content is good enough or interesting enough and then of course with um tiktok and insta stories and all those types of things um reels you you find that there's sort of this short length that people sort of engage with and then there's long form documentary which is um lucky for us documentary is gaining more and more um more and more of an audience on platforms like netflix and apple and stuff like that so you're right it does five minutes is a very strange duration and um what happens i think now when you've got a story you can find a natural duration for something like this when you have a cause that's really worthy when you have a script that's funny and you have a really engaging cast, I think you should just look for a natural duration. And for us, that was the natural duration. When we cut it shorter, we felt like we missed some of the really important points around sustainable travel that we were trying to hit or we lost some of the humour. So for us, that was the sweet spot. That type of content falls into um, sort of an earned media space. So you're not paying for the media space uh, where you'd normally see ads fall into um that sort of 30 and 60 second space. Um, and it's not sort of owned. It's not sitting on somebody's platform. It is earned because it's shared organically and the media pick it up. And, and therefore it doesn't, it doesn't have to be constrained by any sort of format that we think it should be. Um, Augusto is absolutely consciously driving to, to play more in the space where we, like I said before, where we tell stories that impact people on planet for good and hopefully they're entertaining and and all of that too. Um, but we're actually going through a process where we're becoming um, B Corp, uh, like a B Corp company, which means that we are accountable to a whole lot of sustainability measures that are measured globally. Um, and that is, again, around looking after our people and our planet. So what, I, what I'm hoping as the years go on is that... Um, through telling stories like this, we find more awesome partners who want to, you know, come along on the journey and tell tell stories that matter and impact people's. Thank you so much, Michelle. Awesome. Happy to help. That was Augusto owner and director Michelle Walsh on Travelist's new campaign video and the intricacies of production. Coming up on the show, we speak to Jenny Wilson from the Public Service Association about the Allied health strike this past Monday. 
Before that, here is Fat Freddy's Drop with Shady here on R1 News at Radio 1. On the 13th of April, Aotearoa moved to the orange light setting. This meant the dispansion of mask mandates in some public places, notably schools. The decision to remove these mandates in schools has been received controversially. Last week, an internal email from the Ministry of Education to Education and COVID-19 Response Minister Chris Hipkins was leaked, displaying concern from the Ministry at the decision to remove mask mandates in schools. On April 13th, the Green Party released a statement explaining the party does not support the government's decision to move Aotearoa to Orange or the removal of mask rules for schools in a post on their website titled Keep Masks in Schools to Protect Tamariki. Earlier this week, I spoke to Lower North Island secondary school teacher Adam Weir about his first-hand experience of mask mandates in schools, including their recent expansion and what this has meant for staff and student COVID concern and mask compliance. Kia ora, Adam. How are you? I'm really good, thanks. With the move to Alert Level Orange, masks are no longer governmentally required in schools. I can imagine this announcement provoked a range of reactions. It's undoubtedly a controversial topic. Can you describe some of the predominant reactions you witnessed from staff and students? Um, one reaction that we had was one of relief. Um, some people have found um, putting on masks difficult or challenging. Um, some students uh, really struggled to supply their own masks. And so there was some relief that um, teachers would no longer be um, required to manage star- uh, mask usage or mask provision for students. Um, however, uh, there's also a a sense of the government giving up um, and finding protecting us from COVID um, too difficult. Um, some of us uh, feel like we've been left um, without very many protections from COVID. 
Did you notice many students complaining or protesting about masks in the weeks leading up to the alert level change or was there a pretty strong culture of compliance? Uh, at the time, no. There was there was very little in the way of complaints, um, very little in the way of protest. Um, kids had begun to see mask wearing as the new normal um, in schools. Um, kids were asking that, you know, if they turned up without a mask, they'd immediately come over and say, can I have a mask, please? And we would sort that out for them as best we could. Um, we had masks available to, for any student that needed it. Um, and I think the policy could have carried on um, for another month, um, if not longer, um, just through good messaging. If teachers were doing a good job of explaining why the masks were a good idea and were necessary, and if the government continued to do that, and if um, you know cultural leaders in our communities had c continued to do that, um, which they were, then I don't think it would have um, been an issue very much at all. Uh, the kids were quite dismissive, actually, um, and uh, there was a fair amount of ridicule for those who were um, complaining about masks or complaining about mandates. And so the kids are following the science. The vast majority of them looked at masks as being a positive, uh, if annoying, but a positive, if annoying feature of life. But you know what? Winter's just started. So once we, you know, and it's, you can, I'm, I'm dressed up, I'm rugged up right now here at the school. Um, our windows are open, our, um, you know, for ventilation. Kids, for the most part, are not wearing masks. I'm of the opinion that it's not going to take long for spread to go up. Um, because people will start shutting windows and people will start turning their rooms back into um, viral environments by neglecting um, protocol. Um, and they'll be doing it because the kids tell them, hey, I'm cold. You've mentioned there that there's a significant drop in students wearing masks since they became optional. Young people are often regarded to be a particularly impressionable demographic. If a student's friends aren't wearing masks, do you think that would be likely to influence their choice whether or not to mask up? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, we had a norm. The norm was embedding itself. We were almost at the point where across the school um, we had really tight compliance and because everyone was doing it, everyone else was doing it, you know. Um, but the reality is that it's shifted now. Um, we can get it back if we need to. We can get it back. Um, it will be a it'll be a hard task to reintroduce it, but we could do it, and we could do it by you know the same way that we did it in the first place, which was education. And we said to the kids, "Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to you about how this virus spreads. I'm gonna talk to you about how it's airborne." It's not something that we have to worry about surfaces that much like we did at the start of the pandemic. And they'll go, oh, really? And like, yeah, it's, that's not a big deal. But what is a big deal is us breathing in a room together, sharing that air and increasing the likelihood. And, you know, once you start educating kids, you start telling them the truth and you show them the science, they start to go, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. You know, kids are smart, um, but it's a matter of giving them a really generous amount of information and saying, look, 
we trust you to do the right things once you know what's going on. Um, and we could do that again. Um, it would be harder this time because we've got rid of it once. Do you think the lack of mask mandates in Orange could be contributing to any COVID-19 related anxieties students might already be facing? That's a good question. I know it is amongst staff. Um, uh, I, I've, I've had COVID. Um, I caught it here at school. I took it home to my family. I gave it to my wife. I gave it to my um, eight-year-old who'd had one jab, and I gave it to my five-year-old uh, who had had none. Um, and that was during the mask mandate. And so even with really good protections, sometimes people get COVID. Um, kids understand that masks aren't perfect, but but some of our kids are looking around now and realising just how unprotected they are. Um, if we have another big upswing in the school community of cases like we did a month and a half ago, two months ago, when we had the big spike of, of Omicron here in, uh, in the lower North Island, um, then I think kids would start getting a bit more scared again. Um, we're seeing, I was reading something about a, an Auckland um, junior high school the other day that has had to shut down again. Um, and send kids home to stop the school having to go back into essentially uh, digital learning, home learning, um, to keep the school open. Um, we need to put in place better protections um, so and bring back masks. But because the mandate's been removed, we will have pushback from some families. We will, maybe we will possibly have pushback from kids. Um, you know, why, why are we doing this if the government's removed these these rules? Do we tell the kids we're doing it because we disagree with the government? You know, do we say, hey, kids, a whole bunch of epidemiologists have said to the government that they're wrong um, and we're going to follow the epidemiologists because they know the science and the trust that was built up in the government, the trust that was built up in the COVID response will be broken and ha I, I think already has been broken for some people because of this shift, because it no longer looks like um, epidemiologists are being listened to. I mean, what? We just had a leak from the Ministry of Education saying that internally at the ministry, there is concern that we're not following the science. So who do we listen to in this situation? Who are our leaders? How far will school leadership across the country in different environments, how far will they push this? Because schools are built to follow a ministry's directives. And when the ministry gives you directives or removes directives and that contradicts what you understand to be the right thing, um, you're stuck in a position there um, which no school wants to be in. Um, so it's, it's a tough one for school leaders, principals, um, boards of trustees. It's a tough one for them to know what to do. And I think they've been they've been um, undercut, and they've been told these things that are really important. Guess what? They're no longer necessary. And uh, go and deal with the same risks as you used to face, but go and deal with them without the backing of the government.
go and deal with them without authority, go and deal with them without mana, um, the mana that the government can give in some situations, the mana that epidemiological support, you know, the support of the scientists, go and deal with the situation without their mana. And, and that's, um, that's hugely problematic. Groups in support of the dispatching of mask mandates in schools might cite that primary age students cannot see their teachers' faces with masks on, and some new students might even struggle to make friends while wearing masks. Do these sorts of disadvantages have the potential to contest the benefits of mask wearing? No. <laughs> um, I think that they are downsides, yes. Um, they're downsides to mask mandates, they're downsides to mask wearing. Um, but the upsides of mask wearing um, far outweigh um, the potential loss. Look, I, I, my, my kids are at primary school. I, I get that that masks provide a barrier or constitute a barrier um, between humans. Um, it's not a massive barrier, um, but it's, it makes a difference to communication. It makes a difference to body language. It makes a difference to all these things that kids really need. I get that. But at the same time, um, some difficulty here and there in a school environment um, versus long COVID for children. I, I'm 100% behind protecting kids from long COVID um, and from COVID itself. So I... I I think any sensible analysis of the risk profile there is going to say masks are a much better idea than no masks and kids get lots of COVID. That's, yeah, that's my take. Thank you so much for talking to me, Adam. No problem. Lovely to be on. Cheers. The time is 38 minutes past 11. You're listening to R1 News on Radio 1. Te reo irirangi kotahi. That was secondary school teacher Adam Ware on the recent disbanding of mask mandates in schools. On Monday, over 10,000 allied health workers took to picket lines across the country as part of a coordinated strike by the Public Service Association. Members of the union, which comprises 70 different health specialties from physiotherapists to medical laboratory scientists, rejected a last-minute offer from DHBs and instead chose to strike in order to secure better pay and working conditions. Here to speak with us about the strike is organised Jenny Wilson from the PSA. Kia ora, Jenny. Kia ora. Striking workers that were interviewed by Stuff.co.nz spoke of pay being minimal and with limited room for advancements. What conditions actually necessitated the action by the allied health community? Well, these workers have been in bargaining since um, their collective expired in 2020, in October 2020. And so they've been in bargaining for um, over 18 months. And they've gone through, you know, extensive bargaining and um, and gone to facilitation with the Employment Relations Authority and an offer, an acceptable offer, hasn't been made. So um, so that's, that's what brought these, these workers to, to strike action. Given that they've been spending so long um, uh, working out a deal, the last-minute offer made by the DHBs, the PSA rejected as a kick in the guts, was, mm. was just as industrial action was set to begin. What did the strike aim to accomplish in that sense? Well, a strike is always aimed to put pressure on the employer and to demonstrate that, 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 that the power, there is power that sits with, um, with workers and that withdrawal of their labour is, um, you know, is inconvenient and um, creates 
difficulty. So it's never something that uh, that workers or unions do, um, you know, lightly. It, it, people lose pay for going on strike. But um, but sometimes when employers are behaving really in bad faith, um, then demonstrating that um, and putting pressure on them is is something that we we will do in this case. Other unions um, in the healthcare community, such as the New Zealand Dental Association, the Association of Salary Medical Specialists, um, put their support behind the strike. How important was that in, in, in advancing the goals of, of Allied Health? Well, as workers in the health sector, and actually as workers throughout, um, you know, the PSA covers um, workers throughout the, the um, public service, it, you know, the support of other workers is enormously um, valuable, and um, and and the public actually. I mean, um, it, yeah. So so um, that we we would we we don't have to have the support of of the other unions in order to take this action. But of course, um, it is really helpful, and I think that that most um, of the public and and the other people within the health sector understand the importance of the work that these that these um, you know health workers do. It's an incredibly wide um, range of workers and you mentioned that in your um, in your introduction. You know, it's allied health, it's the, the traditional allied health physios and um, uh, social workers and um, OTs, and I'm not meaning to miss anybody out, but um, but then there's also the technical, the anaesthetic techs, the scientific, the public health. You know, you said it is it is the um, a lot of the work that happens within our um, COVID responses undertaken by um, by our members, and um, and you know it's been a very high pressure environment, and people have seen, I think. The, the absolute necessity and value of, of a well-paid, well-functioning public service, um, health health service. So you've sort of spoken about this in terms of the response from the public, but what effects have we seen from the strike so far? Well, I don't know. Uh, what what um, we don't, as far as I'm con- understand, I, I haven't not aware of um, another offer that's being made. That's that's what we're looking to. We're looking to an offer that would um, reflect the recommendation of the facilitator. So, generally, you know, like both parties go to facilitation and talk about what they want and what they can do and what's reasonable. And the facilitator takes several weeks to draft a recommendation that they think is doable and appropriate and fair and, and um, you know, takes all the evidence that they've heard at that facilitation process into account. So, so it's really surprising and incredibly disappointing that um, that the offer didn't reflect that um, that recommendation in some critical way. So, yes, while it, it had some aspects of it and in some very important aspects, it didn't reflect the um, the, the facilitator's recommendation. So, if the, my understanding is that if there was there's not another offer by the end of this week, then they'll be balloting from further strike action. And of course, at the moment, they are in the middle of a work to rule, a two week work to rule, which um, which is also part of this this industrial action. How has the the public's response kind of? Do you think the public's exp- response will will affect um, the drafting of, of of the next of the next kind of facilitation period? Are we are we expecting 
um, that the, the, the public's response to this will have an effect on. on well, the I don't. I'm not. No, I don't think that the, the public's response will um, will. It's a bit hard to gather the public's response, other than um, <laughs> other than the amount of tweets we got on on Monday, which was massive. So, um, so, so we're 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 not waiting for the public to say, um, y- you know, go ahead. We're, um, you know, we if we don't get another offer, then then we'll be balloting the members for for uh, for further industrial action. What next steps does the union have in mind to, for ensuring the better conditions sought by allied health workers? Well, obviously, we um, one of the <laughs> you, it, going going forward, there are some big changes afoot with the new health authority. So, um, but but just for this round of bargaining, we hope to we hope to get a decent offer. To get our members paid properly, and for um, and and to not be not be um, taking industrial action. You know, most of the time we're working with the employers um, on a day-to-day basis to, to engaging with them about making the hospital run better and and, and better ways for um, for workers and for the the service users. So um, we, that's what we like to be doing. But um, but while this dispute is outstanding then you know that that's that's their current focus thanks for speaking with us today jenny thanks for having me have a great that was Jenny Wilson from the Public Service Association speaking about the Allied Health strike this past Monday you're listening to R1 News here on Radio 1 here is Shawboy with Lemon Lady
That was Shawboy with Lemon Lady. This has been R1 News here on Radio 1, Tereo Irirangi Kotahi 91 FM, weekdays from 11am to midday. The time is 11 minutes past 11 minutes to 12. I'm Kaya Kahurangi Jameson. And coming up, we have Bik Runga with No One Walks This Night Alone. Keep it locked on Radio 1. How can the past still be real? 
was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more of them at r1.co.nz forward slash podcast.